Hello there and welcome to the Every Ounce Podcast. Here we talk all things mental health, wellness, and resilience. I'm your host Lexi and I am determined to bring you a one-stop shop for all things related to mental might. Join us for talks about naps and fruit snacks to the most real and raw conversations of life. This is where you will find community, validation, and most importantly, strength. Hello there and welcome back to the podcast. Today I have Tina Coco with me. She's a trauma therapist who specializes in EMDR and group psychotherapy. She's also a plant lover and author of the Perfectionism Journal. In this episode, we'll talk about the three types of perfectionism, people pleasing, and what classifies as trauma. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about all of my favorite things. You just mentioned most of them. So yeah, thanks Good. for having me. Okay, so introduce us, introduce yourself to us and just tell us who you are as a person. Yeah, um, my name is Tina. Um, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and I um, am a trauma therapist. I specialize in trauma. Um, I got to that by way of just regular psychotherapy, went to grad school for to become a therapist and always kind of knew that um, working with more complex disorders um, and PTSD was sort of my passion. So um, have worked a lot in a lot of different areas that have sort of co-occurring trauma, a lot of addiction recovery work, a lot of work in um, survivors of sexual violence and violent crime. So just, People on their worst days are my favorite types of clients or people right after their worst days. Um, those are the folks that I really love to spend time with and, and help out. Um, I really love plants. I'm about to finish my master gardener training here in Philadelphia and I'm so excited to be doing that. Um, I have a lot of house plants and um, have a nice garden that I'm looking forward to having this summer. And um, that's pretty much it. That's I can't awesome. wait. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. We just moved into a little apartment and I want to start an, a little herb garden. I think that'd be so much fun. So yeah. I'll take all the gardening I can get. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about being a trauma therapist. What is trauma if you had to define it? Yeah, so the clinical belief about trauma, and I think like what we kind of are led to believe about trauma is that it's this dysfunction, this mental and emotional dysfunction that happens after something terrible in your life happens. Um, and that's true, right? And so that's how we get the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with have PTSD or um, are just subclinical. So that means that they may not meet all of the specific criteria, but they may have a lot of the symptoms that are recognized in the DSM, the Di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the book of diagnosing for mental health um, that I use as a, as a therapist. But when it comes to trauma, what I tell people, because um, a, a lot of folks that I, I work with and have worked with in, in the past say, well, I don't have trauma. I don't have capital T trauma. I never went to war. I was never sexually assaulted. I was never robbed at gunpoint. I was never in a horrific car accident or 
the victim of a house fire or a tornado or the things that we would think of when you think of like traumatic experiences. Right. Um, but they'll say things like, but I grew up in a house that um, I always felt like I was walking on eggshells or I never felt like I could ever um, get my point across to my parents or, um, you know, I, things like that, where it's, it's maybe something that isn't that, that traumatic experience, but it sort of builds up in your system almost like, and I talk about it, it's almost like when we talk about, um, mercury in fish or like toxic metals in fish. And it kind of like goes up the food chain and it gets like worse and worse and worse is like you go up the food chain. And so then you have to be careful about like what kind of fish you buy because you don't want to be poisoned by toxic metals. It's kind of like that where like little by little over time, these little things can add up in our system to cause this traumatic stress. And so when I originally talk with clients about what is trauma, I ask them to think back, like what moments in your life, when you think back on those moments, make you make a face or you wince or you immediately kind of tense up and that's trauma. Um, it's, it's not necessarily those capital T moments, but it's that stuff that makes you, um, tighten up and, and close yourself off and feel something bad about yourself, feel ashamed of yourself, feel embarrassed, feel isolated or lonely kind of instantly when you think about that. And that's the kind of trauma that, um, can come from both those kind of big traumatic experiences, like those single incidences, but it can all, that trauma can also be what occurs in those kind of smaller traumas that can happen and build up over time. Okay. Okay. Awesome. I love that explanation. You mentioned capital T trauma. And oftentimes we hear of this big T trauma or little T trauma. Will you explain that a little bit? And my other question for you is, does everyone have trauma? Yeah. So big T trauma is going to be like some of those things that I mentioned. Um, They're going to be, again, using clinical terms, they're going to be those precipitating incidences of um, a natural disaster or an assault or a robbery or something that is like an obviously kind of like an unnatural event or something that disrupts like an everyday, uh, your everyday life. Um, And the little T trauma is going to be the stuff that maybe happens in your everyday life, like having a boss that is micromanaging you in a toxic way and just like won't leave you alone and sends you emails at like 630 on a Friday night for something that isn't necessary, you know, to bother you with. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's the difference between big T and little T is that the little T stuff is kind of everyday annoyances, but as it builds up, it can get worse and worse, especially if you don't have a lot of mental coping skills, or let's say that you have some other stuff going on. Like a lot of folks that I've worked with, those little, those little things add up and they, um, compound more and more in people's lives, especially when there's other stuff going on. So those little T traumas that you may be able to deal with on an everyday basis become much more potentially traumatic. If let's say your grandmother just died or there's something else you're going through a breakup or you just moved, or you have these other sort of stressful incidences. I like to think of our emotional wellness, kind of like our immune system. So like when we, you know, when we think of the pandemic and we think about the people that we've been trying to protect the immunocompromised people, I think of that as sort of like trauma compromised people. So people who 
may not have the same level of defense in their everyday lives that um, somebody else might given the same circumstance. So if you're dealing with a lot of stress, if you have uh, you know, money issues or your kids are sick or things like that, those everyday little T trauma stress occurrences are going to build up in your system faster and become toxic quicker than if you had more resources or you had less stress in your life. Gotcha. So the ultimate question is, how is this trauma resolved? What do we do with it now that we recognize it or we know that it's there or we're struggling with it, we're to cope with it, whatever is going on, how does it get resolved? Yeah, so trauma, um, and I guess I didn't answer this, your previous question. I believe that everybody has trauma, right? We all have stress. We We all have the potential to have trauma because we all experience stress in our lives. The difference is, do we go towards post-traumatic stress disorder? Do we go towards um, maladaptive or poor coping? Or do we go towards post-traumatic growth? Most of the time, most people go to post-traumatic growth. So um, things like coping skills, like do I have people that I can talk to? Am I seeing a therapist that I trust and that I can express freely to um, and share about my emotions? Do I have friends that I can vent to if I need to, or that support me who will you know, text me kind things and, and be supportive if I'm going through something tough? Do I have um, family members that are supportive of me and unconditionally loving no matter who and what I am and what I do? Those are the kinds of things that can help us move towards post-traumatic growth. Um, Trauma is also something that gets held in our body. So Bessel van der Kolk is sort of the original um, kind of identifier of this in the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Also, Peter Levine is another researcher that's done a lot of work on sort of understanding how the brain and the body and the emotions sort of work together. Um, trauma and traumatic stress is a nervous system and a neurological issue, or it can become that. And so, um, things that can be helpful in everyday life to handle trauma and stress, going for a walk, um, the left, right, left, right, left, right movement of, of taking steps forward is actually something called bilateral stimulation. And that can actually help, um, help cause relief in our lives when we're dealing with something stressful. So simply going for a walk, um, getting outside and taking some deep breaths in fresh air is another thing. Um, clearing, you know, we talk about this idea of clearing your head. So whether that's taking a shower or a bath and sort of those things when we think of like self-care-y type things that, that people mm-hmm. talk about, those have come be cliche over time because they're actually really useful in times of high stress. Um, right. And depending on the kind of person you are and depending on whether your fight or flight response is fight, flight, freeze, or fold. So we think about the nervous system. We think about our body. If you, if you face adversity and your natural reaction is to fight, you're probably someone who's going to be super organized, type A, make lists and and check things off those lists. Um, If you're a flight person, you're going to avoid it. You're going to ignore it. You're going to procrastinate. Um, If you freeze, you're probably going to be someone that wants to lay in bed all day and just kind of shut out the world. Um, if you fold, you're probably going to be um, similar to to um, flight, where you're just you're going to kind of run away from it. Um, so it really kind of depends on like what your own natural nervous system sort of gravitate towards in handling and dealing with everyday stress. 
And once you can sort of identify what your own nervous system prefers to do, are you a list maker? Well, do those lists add more stress to you? Do you maybe need to just go for a walk and take a deep breath and let it go for a minute? Or are you someone who maybe you need to be a little bit more assertive in how you handle um, your schedule or your activities or the stress? Um, it could be something as simple as just like taking out the trash or like putting your laundry away. I know that I feel much more anxious and I am much more susceptible to the everyday traumas of life when my physical environment is messy or when I feel disorganized on the outside. That's usually a sign that I'm disorganized on the inside. And so kind of knowing those cues and knowing what um, your own life can look like and, and when you feel your best, just noticing when that happens and noticing when you're not feeling your best so that you can do something about it. I love that. I think of different ways that we can practice self-care that aren't typical ways of practicing self-care, like vacuuming out your car or, you know, <laughs> taking out the trash or um, all of those different things that are just a little funky that we don't first think of when we think of self-care, but that totally help our environment and ultimately help our brains um, I'm the same way. If things are crazy around me, I know it's because things are things are going are chaotic in inside my inside my mind. And so I think that that's something that we should remember, like and prioritize is that self care, so that we can actually function and actually be productive with the rest of our lives. Yeah, and and I I think of it in terms of creating space for choices, because my goal is not to be productive all the time, right? I can't constantly right. be producing because that in and of itself is a function of trauma, is a function of perfectionism. Oh, I constantly have to be going. But to me, it's about giving myself the option to have the space to, to make the choice. Do I want to sit down in this room that's full of stuff that I need to put away or do I want to sit in this room full of stuff that's that's organized that helps me feel better um, and then I can make a decision of do I want to check my email or not do I want to work on this project that I have a deadline for or things like that and I also think too um, especially with the pandemic it's just been so isolating for so many people and I know that I've gotten like a couple standard deviations weirder than I was before the pandemic started. <laughs> so, um, I think that a lot of it too has just has to do with for me in, in sort of dealing with um, trauma that kind of shows up in the everyday is just making sure that I feel connected to people that I care about. Um, I have a professional network of people that I check in with and have accountability about work projects that I'm working on. I have um, a solid group of friends that we have a text chat and I can tell in my own self and my own body when I feel annoyed when the people that I've asked to reach out to me are reaching out to me there's something wrong right there's something I need to do like that to me is like a big red flag of oh there's there's something that I need to check out like there's something not sitting right with me that I need to process through if this thing that normally brings me joy isn't bringing me joy anymore right so I was going to ask, what is one thing that listeners can do to help prioritize their mental health when they're trying to break down the stigma around trauma or cope with trauma? What's the number one thing that kind of comes to your mind? 
stop and sit with it. I think that most of the people that I work with, they come to me when they have worked so hard and so long to try to outrun their feelings, to try to outpace whatever they're afraid is going to catch up to them, whether it's an emotion or a deadline or a relationship that isn't serving them anymore that they're not ready to let go of or whatever the case may be. But like when you, when you stop and you sit with it, um, it's kind of like being in a hurricane, right? You're going to have high winds, but eventually the hurricane's going to continue to pass and you're going to be in the eye of it and it's going to be calm and you're going to be able to know like what you need to do next. And then it's going to get bad again because it's going to keep moving through. Um, but you've had that moment of calm. You've had, you've been in the eye of that storm and you've been able to sit with it. And I think that when people have the most success with me as a trauma therapist, it's when they're ready to just stop. And really that, that takes a lot of courage to, because you have to relinquish a lot of control. You have to let go of outcomes, which can be really scary, especially if you're traumatized by something, by not knowing what's going to happen next. That's a really terrifying prospect for people. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my first, I mean, I guess my, my first piece of advice should be like, get a really good trauma, ther- trauma-informed and trauma-focused <laughs> therapist. And then my next set of advice would be stop. But if you, if you don't do it in that exact order, then, then yeah, stop and stop and see, evaluate, like, what am I actually trying to outrun? What am I trying to outpace? What am I trying to avoid having catch up to me? And then how can I get the help that I need to face that? Because it's something you probably don't want to face alone. Right. Uh, I know Tiffany Rowe always says feel the hill. And I am always someone that jumps to the deal. And I forget to sit and feel for a minute. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so much easier said than done, uh, yeah. but keeping that in the forefront of our minds and being, I mean, for me anyway, I, I still need a lot of practice and a lot of uh, with, with feeling how I'm feeling and not running away from, from whatever it is, but just remembering, oh, okay. I, I think it's okay for me to just sit here and sit with it for a minute and not do anything about it. Just just sit with it. Um, you have to sit with it long enough to know what it actually is, because if you mm. only sit with it, right, the reason that it, it's so uncomfortable is because for the first little while you're sitting in the judgment about even having it to begin with. And once you sit long enough to let go of your own judgment, to let go of the outcome, to let go and to even do some grieving about like, what things you may have to let go. Cause that's a loss, right? That's not just something that we can, it's, it's like you said, it's so much easier said than done. Grieving the loss of, of a preferred outcome to maybe right. manage expectations and to really deal with what the actual problem is. So much of the work that I help people through is just cutting, cutting to the core of what the problem actually is because there's so much shame, there's so much guilt there's so much judgment that they pile on themselves that we have to 
it's almost like a frosted cake. You have to like take off all the frosting before you get to the cake part. Right. So for someone who's new to this, what would you say sitting with it looks like? I, I really like taking a simple emotion wheel. Like I'm talking simple, like kindergarten level, like happy, sad, angry, like one of those cartoon things. Like the, the five options. <laughs> yeah. Just, just something like super simple and then sitting and exploring what does that feel like? Can I remember a time when I felt this way? And what does that feel like in my body? Because when you start to connect your, in, your brain intelligence of what I, what I think to be true, your emotional intelligence, what I feel to be true, and then your internal knowing that intuition of like, this is what I know to be true with my brain and my body connected, you can begin to recognize like when you're beginning to feel certain ways about stuff. And when you can, when you can identify those emotions and you can identify those patterns, not only in how you feel emotionally, but the physical sensations that go along with it, you're going to be able to speed up the process. It's almost interesting that by slowing down and doing that, taking the time to learn, you're actually speeding up the process for the future to be able to dissipate emotions by honestly just giving them the attention. Tod emotions are sort of like toddlers and toys are us. They just, they want what they want when they want it. And that's why they feel mm. so strong. And they're, they're throwing a tantrum, but in our, in our brains and our bodies, those emotions aren't gonna last forever, right? I've been happy in my life. I've been really sad in my life. And right now I feel, I feel pretty good. I don't feel the happiest I've ever felt, but I don't feel sad right now. So. I know that my emotions are going to change and to be able to recognize how I'm feeling in the moment um, can really allow me to recognize what I need because when I, when that emotion gets the attention it deserves, I'm actually showing up for myself. And that's actually a really, really important part of resilience. And one of the specialties that I do in my practice in EMDR, um, one of my mentors that, that has trained me in it calls um, trauma work, really giving yourself a compassionate witness for when you didn't have it in the, in the past, whether you didn't provide yourself a compassionate witness because you, you piled on that shame or that judgment or that guilt about something, or maybe that came from somebody else that put shame and judgment and guilt onto you for that moment. Um, showing yourself a compassionate witness when you can do it in the moment by recognizing the emotion that you're feeling and honoring that emotion without indulging it necessarily, right? And feeling really, feeling grief in a grocery store is not the most convenient time to be feeling overwhelmed by grief, but it can happen, right? It can be triggered. It's happened to me. I've felt, I've been in public. I've been on public, I've cried on public transportation before. It's, it's happened to a lot of people. And so when you can, when you can experience that emotion without letting it dictate how you're going to be, it passes through and, and you can move on to the next thing and have that room to make those choices. I think that a lot of, a lot of trauma work comes down to learning how to navigate your own internal landscape so that there's enough room to make a conscious choice instead of react to a situation. I love that. That was so beautifully said. So Tina, I want to kind of 
jump topics here and talk a little bit about EMDR. Um, so to those that don't know what EMDR is, they don't know what the string of letters means. <laughs> can you explain can you explain it to them and when EMDR is used? Yeah, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It is a uh, brain-based um, therapy that uses, um, it uses the lighting up of different neurological pathways and then putting those pathways under construction to reprocess and desensitize negative experiences. So that's why it's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization. So we desensitize memories and then we reprocess them. When we go through something traumatic, what, what happens like a good, an analogy of our brain is, our brain is, is like the DMV. There are people that when you go up to the DMV, they, they say, fill out this form and then they rubber stamp the form. They're not the people that created the form. They are not the people that are going to be able to give you an allowance or make an exception for you. It is just their job at the desk to rubber stamp the form make sure that you filled it out correctly and then move that form on to the next people. So memories come in, they get to the DMV counter and your brain's initial job is to rubber stamp these memories. Okay, what I had for lunch yesterday, um, my soccer practice in third grade, uh, what my grandmother's perfume smelled like, all these different memories get rubber stamped and then they get filed into the appropriate file folders in our brain. Mm -hmm. When we go through something traumatic, it's kind of like having the wrong form at the DMV. It can't be rubber stamped by the person immediately. It has to keep moving around. And then what ends up happening is that that memory, that experience keeps getting moved around to these different brain bureaucrats and it never gets into the right file folder because there's not an appropriate place to put it. When we go through something, when it either builds up in our system or it's that single event traumatic experience, it's not supposed to be happening. It doesn't make any sense. We're not supposed to be experiencing that as a human person. And so that gets floated around our brain and it ends up becoming something that is, is scary for someone to have land on their desk, right? The bureaucrats in our brain want to avoid that. And so EMDR takes, takes that memory, takes that piece of paper that identifies that memory and it turns it into a form that those bureaucrats can identify and then file away in an appropriate place. So we're not gonna magically take that memory away. We're not gonna magically take trauma out of your life, but it allows us to um, be able to process it and put it in the place so that it doesn't cause stress and anxiety for your brain to deal with over and over and over again when it gets triggered. I think that's one of the best explanations and analogies I've ever heard. Um, so what does EMDR look like? Because I know we say eye movement. So I'm, I'm sure there's people wondering, I know when I first learned about EMDR, I'm thinking, what, what do they actually do in, like in, in an EMDR session? What, how does it work? Like if I were to show up to an EMDR session, what should I expect? Yeah. So every therapist is different. Um, but what you're first going to expect is the first few sessions are probably going to be like a traditional talk therapy session because there are different phases in EMDR. And the first couple of phases the ther therapist is going to take you through um, have to do with getting your history and making sure that you're an appropriate fit. 
and also preparing you for that desensitization and reprocessing process. So once you get into that phase, which begins in phase three, um, and then phase four begins the actual desensitization. So once you get through the first couple of phases and you get into phase four, you're going to have a very different experience. So it's not going to be like any kind of therapy you've ever done before. Um, so you're going to, your brain is going to be um, put into a place that's similar to REM sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep, and that's like the dream sleep. That's where your brain kind of takes out the garbage of each day. Like when you sleep at night and you get into REM sleep, your brain is actually kind of sorting out. That's when the bureaucrats come out and sort the, the pile of paper from the day, right? This is what I had for lunch. This is what I wore to school. This is what happened um, at 4.30 after I was thinking about going home from work. This is what I had for a snack. This is what I said to my partner. This is what my best friend texted me. All those things that come through in a, and we may or may not remember that gets sorted out in our REM sleep, right? Do I need to put this in the long-term memory? Can I get rid of this? Can we throw out this piece of paper? Um, or is this something that I have to put into my uh, like conscious memory so that I remember it because it has to do with like safety and security issues. Mm. So EMDR, an EMDR session when you're in reprocessing utilizes bilateral stimulation. So the REM sleep, it's that left, right, left, right, left, right, back and forth eye movement. Uh, EMDR uses left, right, left, right, back and forth, either eye movement. Um, I also, when I'm in person, I use hand buzzers. So people hold, they're almost like little, we call them buzzies. You, they're like little paddles that you hold in your hand and, and they buzz back and forth, back and forth, left, right, left, right. Um, I mentioned before going on a walk that's left, right, left, right. Um, any type of movement that goes one side of the body to the other side of the body, as long as you cross the midline of your body, you're, you're putting yourself into a bilateral simulation, which then is your brain. It's your brain signal that, oh, I need to be processing information right now. There's, there's something that I need to be working on. And the way that it works in EMDR is when the therapist uses that bilateral simulation, that left, right, left, right. And you are awake and you're conscious of what you're thinking about. Um, we can evoke that memory of a traumatic experience. And because you're, you're in the present with me, but you're also part of your memory. So it's called dual attention because you're part in the memory, part in the present. We can actually get your brain to focus on what it needs to reprocess on. And so that's how it actually works is we light up that memory in your body. We open up the mechanism of your brain reprocessing through the bilateral stimulation. And then your brain does the work itself to reprocess the negative experience of that memory to neutralize it. And so we, we go from um, something that's disturbing to asking a few times as we go through it, we, we want to have it at no disturbance or neutral, right? It happened, but it doesn't bother me. I, when I think about it, I don't, I don't tense up anymore. It's not something that um, lives in my body and my brain is something that's dangerous. I love that. I am literally so excited to become EMDR certified. I can't wait to, to get going on that. The, I've, I think I've sat in on a few EMDR sessions and I'm always just so grateful for the opportunity that I have to just sit back and watch this amazing work be done. Um, I am so grateful for 
the education that we have about EMDR Mm -hmm. and the therapists like yourself that are currently making that work go forward so that individuals are actually able to benefit from it. Um, I think that's super, super cool. Do you have any kind of, I don't want to say success stories, but have you seen any awesome benefits of EMDR that you would like to share? Yeah, I, I specialize in pretty traumatic experience. Um, so whether that is childhood sexual abuse, um, I've worked with first responders, um, that have a lot of guilt and shame about, uh, people that have died on their watch. Um, I've worked with folks that have been significantly abused and neglected. Um, and I've, I've been able to see relief in all of them. Um, I've, I've never experienced with a client a situation where somebody hasn't gotten some relief um, in, in some aspect of their lives. Um, depending on the person and depending on what the, the situation is, right, there, there is no magical experience that's going to take pain away. Right. We're, we're going to experience it. It's, it's part of life that we didn't sign up for, but it's just a part of it. And so um, in, in my clients, I get, to, I get to witness and help them experience what it feels like to let go of the things that are around the traumatic experience so that they can actually process the experience itself. What I often find is that the people that have the most significant trauma, it's not the traumatic experience itself, it's the feelings of isolation and loneliness, like nobody understands them anymore, or they feel fundamentally broken, or they believe that they're they should never have existed because this terrible thing happened. And how could something like that have happened if they were meant to, you know, live this successful life? Um, so really we're, we end up targeting and that's part of the EMDR process is targeting negative core beliefs about ourselves. And when we identify those beliefs and we reprocess memories, we also, we also neutralize those negative beliefs about ourselves. And so um, it's really great. I've seen, I've seen people neutralize things like it's my fault, right? If something bad happened to somebody else mm. that they love, or it was my responsibility when they were a kid, when something bad happened, or um, I should never be trusted or I can never trust myself. So these things that, that they really believe deep down, it's, it's not even about the trauma, it's about this negative belief that they have about themselves that prevent them from reaching their full potential that we get to see melt away through this process, which I think is the most amazing part of the transformation. Mm, absolutely. Okay, I wanna shift gears to the part that I've been waiting for, and no, I'm just kidding, but <laughs> this, <laughs> talking about perfectionism, Um, I myself am diving deeper and deeper into my own perfectionism and into just perfectionism as a whole and how it develops and what it is and, and how we cope with it. Um, so first of all, let's connect the dots between trauma and perfectionism. How are they related? Yeah, well, 
perfectionism is a really gentle way to get people to recognize that maybe they have some trauma because perfectionism mm. is a is usually a result of something negative happening because you realize oftentimes from a young age that if you can try to outpace or outperform a negative feeling, you will have success or accolades or positive things reinforced in your life. So perfectionism ends up becoming a self-fulfilling and self-perpetuating thing in your life. Because if I go through something really hard, let's say for instance, my parents get divorced when I am six or seven years old. And then um, I'm really sad about that. And it's really upsetting. And mom and dad were fighting and it's really tense at home. And then mom and dad are separated and I live with mom and she has money problems. And so I have all this stuff going on in my life, but mm -hmm. I can get straight A's or I can be the pretty girl at school and I can always look a certain way, or I can, um, manipulate things to be how I want them to in this certain area of life. And I can create a perfect environment of my own creation. That is, that's seeking safety. That's seeking assurance that I have control over all of the things that I don't actually have control over. Um, and it, it becomes a really useful coping skill for people. And so I can ignore all of the stuff that's going wrong with mom and dad and the divorce and all the things that I'm feeling about that. If I can control the grades that I'm getting, how I wear my hair every day, like making sure I have the cool clothes if I want to, making sure that I'm socializing with the right people, all of those things that could go along with perfectionism. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about the three types of perfectionism. This is a fairly new concept to me as well. Um, that I'm loving learning about. So what are they? Yeah, so perfectionism comes in, in three different flavors. Um, <laughs> and, and most perfectionists have a combination of these three flavors. So there's self-oriented perfectionism, which is similar to what I just described, that I have these expectations for myself. Other people don't have to follow them, but I need to make sure that I look pristine when I walk out the door. I need to make sure that I'm getting straight A's. I need to make sure that I'm working super hard on my soccer team and that I'm like the, the best goalie I could possibly be. Um, so that would be like self-oriented perfectionism. We then have other oriented perfectionism, which is I need other people to meet my high standards. So I need my friends to all have perfect hair and perfect nails and perfect teeth, or I need um, all of my friends to be really, really smart people who also get really good grades, who wanna get into Ivy League colleges. Um, I need my siblings to also act a certain way. Um, we oftentimes see this, I, as a therapist, I see this in relationships, intimate partner relationships. Um, mm. I need my spouse to behave this certain way because how they behave is a reflection of who mm -hmm. I am and what I think about myself. Mm. Um, and then last, we have social-oriented perfectionism, which is um, similar to self-oriented perfectionism. I have to be perfect but instead of it coming from inside of you, it comes from expectations from other people or perceived expectations. So I have to be perfect because my mom expects me to look a certain way. I have to be perfect because my dad told me that I have to get straight A's or I'm not gonna get into a good college. I have to be perfect because the culture tells me that if I don't weigh a certain amount that I'm, I'm not beautiful. 
Um, so, so we get into perfectionism almost from like a peer pressure standpoint, which is that other oriented perfectionism. Okay, so the golden question of how does perfectionism develop? Like if we're diving deeper into this discussion, what's the root cause of perfectionism? Um, success, weirdly enough. So I get an A in a class and, or I get an A on a paper and I realize, oh, I, my mom was really proud of me and dad was really proud of me and the teacher gave me a nice sticker. Um, and it can start really young. You know, I remember when I got like a C on a math quiz once and how terrible I felt about myself because I was getting mm-hmm. pretty decent grades. And for whatever reason, mm-hmm. like I just wasn't getting fractions in, in third grade or whatever grade I was in. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, like who I am as a person wasn't who I thought I was because I, I got, I got the C on this math quiz. Um, so it, it really is, is something that starts with, I was successful and I felt really good. And when I feel good, I get a hit of dopamine. And when I have dopamine, I feel happier. I'm able to um, feel better. I have a better outlook. I feel safe and secure. So there's this like internal almost chemistry happening with perfectionism is when I, when I receive these, this positive reinforcement, um, I, it almost becomes, I don't want to say an addiction because it's not an addiction per se, but it, it becomes something that I strive for. And I want that to keep going. And, and I learned pretty quickly that the best way to keep it going is to keep doing that thing. So if it's about getting good grades, I keep getting good grades and I focus my time and attention onto studying. If it's about being beautiful, I focus my time and attention on being beautiful and whatever, whatever that meant for me at the time that I got those accolades for it. If it has to do with being successful at an instrument or a sport, like I spend my time and attention doing just that. And I, I do it um, to the detriment of other parts of my life. And that's when perfectionism becomes a problem is it either becomes something that um, I start to ignore other parts of my life um, that are, that could be important to me or that might have been important to me, but I, they start dropping off. So maybe um, if I work on this sport all the time, that means that I'm missing my friends who go to art class and do other things that aren't in this sport. Right. So I'm missing out. It's almost an opportunity cost. Um, it also becomes a thing where eventually that the train has an end. There's going to there's gonna be a point in which I no longer get accolades for doing the same amount of work because maybe I was really good at something when I was a kid, but then people catch up to me and they become good at other stuff. Mm. And then I'm only good at this one thing. And so then I feel like I'm left out and I can then kind of left behind. Or it becomes really, really stressful to maintain. And I can't, I just can't simply do it anymore. I just, it becomes burnout and I become so tired and frustrated and and I don't know who I am without the success though and so this thing that was almost like a self-perpetuating engine moving me forward ends up becoming this thing that stops usually suddenly and then causes this dysfunction in order to keep maintaining Mm. so is perfectionism maintained can it be overcome completely 
are what are the pros versus the cons of perfectionism like for someone that's that has perfectionism in their life do they want to like quote unquote overcome all of it because is that the best possible outcome or what does that look like it's going to be different for everybody but i i really believe that perfectionism like any kind of coping mechanism is like is born out of both necessity and it also is used because it works and so there are there are things that are there are positive parts of perfectionism right like getting good grades is not an inherently negative thing and I know lots of people that work really hard for it. I know lots of people that give up other things in order to get better grades. Um, and that's like, that's a fine choice to make. That doesn't necessarily make you like a toxic perfectionist. Um, if something's important to you, then I think that's it. It's important to pursue it and do it. Um, when it becomes something that you feel you have to do in order to maintain a status or it becomes such an important part of your identity that you don't know who you would be without it, that's when perfectionism is a problem. So being a perfectionist in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's when it becomes the only thing that becomes important to you or the only thing that you think other people think is important about you. When you yourself are no longer valuable just because, uh, you don't have this thing as a part of you anymore because uh, it's simply not true because people people are inherently valuable and people are inherently lovable whether or not they're getting good grades or winning awards or uh, doing things that that cause them to receive accolades for whatever reason okay so let's jump into people pleasing <laughs> what is people pleasing is it a part of perfectionism yeah, people pleasing is a is a really uh, common byproduct of that social oriented perfectionism where you are um, trying to be perfect because you because of other people's expectations or the the way that you perceive other people do expect things from you. Um, again, it could be it could start off as something really benign. Um, for instance, my dad had a policy growing up, like, I want you to get B's or better. I think it's really important that you try hard enough. You know, you don't have to get straight A's and be perfect, but we want you to do well enough to get B's or better. Mm -hmm. So when I got that C on that math quiz, like it was pretty upsetting because, right. oh my gosh, not only maybe am I dumb and I don't know math, but now I'm letting my dad down too. So I had a little bit of, of self-oriented perfectionism and a little bit of social-oriented perfectionism from my dad. So that would be an, an example of that people pleasing. I need to do this because somebody else needs me to. And what ends up happening is people pleasing, we, we start to overestimate how much power and control we have over other people or what our choices have over other people. And we underestimate how much control and agency we have over our own lives. And we actually give up power to other people and we create usually these invisible contracts with people and we say, okay, I'm going to do things that make you happy. And then in return, I'm expecting you to do things that make me happy because I'm handing responsibility over my happiness over to you and you're handing responsibility for your happiness over to me. And so mm -hmm. this people pleasing becomes this almost 
inverse relationship of who's actually in charge of how we feel. Right. So I can't help but think about boundaries. Is boundaries a big part uh, and the importance of setting boundaries a part of people pleasing? Yes. And oftentimes what I find is that my clients don't have a problem setting a boundary with other people. They have a problem holding a boundary with other people. Mm. They can say, I don't like this and I want this to change, but it's when something comes up or there's stress that happens or somebody needs you for the first time and you're going to let them down by telling them no. Um, that's when it becomes really hard to hold a boundary. When you know that your decision to maintain your boundary is going to inherently upset or disappoint or let down somebody who used to rely on you. And the thing about people pleasing is it takes a really long time for people to learn that you're creating a healthy boundary, not being a selfish jerk. Because Mm. people who are used to you going above and beyond And that's what you've, that's how you've taught them how to treat you for probably a long time. When all of a sudden you're holding what is for you a healthier boundary, that's going to feel to them like an inconvenience. And they're going to, they're going to question that until they get used to, this is the new way that things are. Mm, I see. So Tina, here's, here's a big question for you that I don't know if you're going to have the answer to, but we'll, we'll test, we'll test. Yeah. How does someone overcome perfectionism and live a more meaningful, a more fulfilling life? I think it goes back to what we talked about in how to deal with trauma. I think sitting down and being quiet with yourself and thinking about what is actually important to me and would this be important to me if I wasn't trying to impress other people or I wasn't trying to, that phrase, keep up with the Joneses or if I, if I wasn't trying to compete um, for attention <clears throat> with other people would this thing really be important to me? Does it really matter if I get good grades? If my ultimate goal is to go to Harvard Med School and there are certain criteria I have to meet with grades and the MCAT and all of that stuff, like then maybe, yeah, the answer is yes. Like I need to keep grinding at this and I need, like if, if that's what I really want, great. But if I just want to be a doctor and it doesn't matter what school I go to and I could go to any med school and be just as successful of a doctor. And it really, I really only want to be a doctor because I want to help kids because I'm really passionate about helping sick kids. And maybe, maybe you can loosen up the reins a little bit. And so it really begins to asking ourselves, like, what do we really value? and what's really important to us. And that can be a really scary question for a perfectionist to ask themselves because they, a lot of people that I work with realize that they've been pursuing a life that has nothing to do with the values that they actually have. And it can be really scary to course correct from that. 
Okay, I have to have one last plug for Tina's new, fairly new book. It's called The Perfectionism Journal that I know you can get on Amazon because it's sitting in my cart. But <laughs> Tina, is there anywhere else that you can get that book? Um, Amazon's the best place. I know like Barnes and Noble has it. I think you can order it from the Target website as well. Um, but yeah, Amazon's the best place um, for me as far as like ordering and like the numbers go and also if you get it um please please leave a review we would love to know what you think of it um and so much of what i talked about today there are activities and exercises for you to practice that sitting and that knowing and that connection between your emotions and your mind and your body um yeah i i i loved writing this book it's called the perfectionism journal, but it should be called like how to spend time with yourself and heal your nervous system because anybody that has any kind of trauma or perfectionistic tendencies, even if you don't consider yourself a perfectionist, uh, could really benefit from, from the prompts and the exercises and activities in the journal. I'm so excited. I'm going to go click order. Uh, <laughs> I just, I need to have it. <laughs> Tina, is there any last piece of encouragement that you'd like to leave with listeners that are maybe currently working towards coping with trauma and or perfectionism? You are not alone. You are so not alone. You are so not alone. And so many people are cheering for you. And not only in your own life that maybe you don't realize and might discount, but also um just people like me who do this kind of work like i can't tell you how proud i am of my clients like it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about how much better their lives are and it's not because i mean i like to think i'm a good therapist and i think that they would think so too but the bravery that they show by just showing up and being willing to do the work that we we do together is totally flabbergasting to me. And I, I'm so proud of my clients. And so if you have a therapist, just know they're proud of you and they really care about you and they're on your team and we just want to cheerlead you on. So you're not alone and we're proud of you. Oh, I love that. And with that, thank you all so much for tuning in today. I hope that Tina and I have brought some awareness and validation to you in regards to perfectionism EMDR and trauma recovery. If you know someone that would benefit from this episode, please send them this podcast. Be sure to check out at green.circle.collective on Instagram. And of course, make sure to follow at every ounce of strength. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember that this podcast, my Instagram account, or any other content on my website should not be used as a replacement for therapy or professional treatment. Eating disorders and mental health conditions are serious psychological and physiological illnesses that should be treated appropriately by licensed professionals. This space is simply for the purpose of community support, offering suggestions, giving hope, and encouraging recovery. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce of strength.